You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26ers, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delicia, and this episode features Elgin Swift, host of Cryptology Podcast. Through his show, Elgin helps his listeners navigate through the world of cryptocurrency in a language that the average Joe can understand. But he wasn't always in control of his financial destiny. Elgin lost his mother at a very young age, and his father eventually fell into the throes of addiction. But Elgin overcame homelessness and poor choices, transitioning to a straight and narrow path and gradually building an impressive life for himself. Now he's passing on what he knows about financial literacy and working on some exciting projects along the way. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy. Elgin, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. You got good energy. I feel like I do. I feel it already. Thank you. It's free of charge. I think this is going to be a good one. I would agree. And happy you did not charge us to appear on the podcast. No, I would never charge anybody anything. (laughs) So tell me, who is Elgin Swift? Elgin Swift is a self-made individual, someone who comes from very uh, humble beginnings, has come a long way in his life, but hasn't forgotten the beginnings, and is now just looking for the next version of me to bring along the same way people helped me bring myself along to where I am in life. Okay. So since you brought up the humble beginnings, yeah. let's start there. Where cool. were you raised? I was raised uh, majority Yonkers, uh, but bounced back and forth between Yonkers and the Bronx. Yeah. Okay. And what was your fi- fam- family dynamic like at home? Um, well, my mom... She she died when I was young. I was one years old. My mom got shot. Um, I don't really know. You know, they say she shot herself. Some say she, someone shot her. You know, I really don't know. It's, it's, it was ruled a suicide, but I don't really know for certain. You know, and so I, I was raised by my dad. Um, you know, I had a grandmother who who was my father's mother, who kind of filled the the mother role, sort mm-hmm. of. Um, you know, but my dad struggled with addiction in my teenage years. Um, he went to jail when I was sixteen. So from sixteen to now, I've pretty much raised myself with you know the guidance of different individuals throughout the course of my life. So take me back. When was the moment or your earliest memory of realizing that you did not have a mother? Um, I didn't really realize to other people ask me, you know, to like, because, mm-hmm. you know, growing up typically and you grow up in certain neighborhoods, it's always like the mom raising the, the people and, right. and the dad might not be there. Where mine, my dad was there, but my mom wasn't there. And people were like, well, you know, where's your mom? And I didn't really know the difference. You know, I, this is probably five, six years old. I didn't really realize anything was missing because mm-hmm. I didn't know my mother. So, you know, people would ask me and, you know, like, where's your mom? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I call my grandmother mom. So that was kind of like my mom to me but then that kind of sparked curiosity and you know as a young age I was told different things I was told my mom originally told me she died in a car accident Um, then you know the story transformed to you know she had a brain tumor but then when I was like 16 I was in um, Florida uh, visiting my mother's parents yeah I believe I was in Florida yeah and and then they told me how she really passed away so that was kind of like that was kind of the shocking you know that Mm -hmm. was not something I expected but I didn't really feel a void because I think to miss something, you have to have it initially. Right. Yeah. So was it her family or your father or father's family that was questioning how she really passed away? Um, My mother's parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, they I guess when you have a child, probably you never maybe can come to terms or want to admit that maybe your child 
took their own life, mm -hmm. you know, so that could be where it stemmed from. You know, I don't really know, but mm -hmm. they, they definitely were the one that was said, you know, it was ruled this, but we are not sure if that's what happened. Right. I think there's always that internal belief that something happened. Yeah. This person didn't make a, a decision in that moment. Yeah, I think they definitely um, put some blame on my dad because, you know, my dad had a lot of guns. Like, you know, my dad was an interesting dude. He was like kind of like half in the street, but half not, mm -hmm. you know. What, like, do you, what do you mean by that? Like half in the street and half not. Mm -hmm. like, like he worked the job, but he always tried to get a dollar outside of his job mm -hmm. or trying to figure it out. He was more like a manipulator of the system, so mm -hmm. to speak. You know, but he was into guns and, and stuff like that. So there was always guns in my house growing up. Um, and, you know, the gun that she got killed with was one of his guns. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he ended up getting arrested for having illegal firearms and, and stuff like that. Um, so I'm pretty sure they felt a way about him. Um, probably put some blame on him. All right. So yeah. were you, how old were you when you realized, okay, my father has some issues here as well. He's battling addiction. You know, as a young kid, he didn't, there was no signs mm -hmm. of it. You know, like I used to come home and, you know, he had company and they had what would look like a hookah now, you know, and right. smoking weed and you just smell funny and, you know, you would just kind of like, all right, that's normal, like smoking mm -hmm. weed, whatever. But it was as I got to probably like 12, 13, where, you know, um, he started to dabble in other things, you know, and I believe my dad struggled with addiction before I was born. Mm -hmm. You know, I believe he, he was a recovering heroin addict because we used to go to this place early in the mornings. Every morning we would go to this building and he would leave me in the car while mm -hmm. he would go in the building. Right. And I used to have like separation anxiety for some reason. I used to feel like my dad wasn't going to come back. So like even though he would be gone for five minutes, it felt like an hour. Right. So years later, like I realized that was a methadone clinic, you know. Wow. Yeah. So that's where he used to go every morning. So he had addiction issues before I was born. Um, but from early childhood to I'm going to say 12 years old, like, you know, my dad was really like a good dad to me. Like, you know, he mm -hmm. bought me the stuff I wanted. He didn't appear to have any problems. It was when I got into like 12, 13, when he started to, you know, dabble in other drugs, which led to harder drugs. And, you know, I didn't probably realize that he had uh, an addiction until I was like... Uh, 13, 14. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 13, 14, you realize your father has an addiction. Then fast forward to 16 and he gets sent away. Yeah. So how much time was he doing at, at that point? Oh, well, let me just put it in perspective and mm -hmm. give you like the backstory. So when I say when I, the way, when I realized my dad was doing drugs, it's a funny story. Well, not a funny story, but I remember it very vividly mm -hmm. still all these years later. I, it was, I used to go to the bathroom. We had one bathroom apartment, right? Two, two bedroom, one bath. And it was always this magazine in the bathroom. And um, it was a picture of Iron Mike Tyson mm -hmm. on the page. It was a black picture, black paper, black backdrop with Iron Mike Tyson's face, but it was made of iron, the image mm -hmm. of him. And it was always this white powder on the... Uh, the paper and I was just always kind of like looking at it when I would go to the bathroom like it would be I would be on a toilet and would be right there and like I just always looked at it looked at it and focused on it for some reason and then like I watched one of those after school specials that right. they used to have that dealt with with drugs and I kind of said like oh that's what that is so that was kind of like suppressed emotion in me and me and my dad had um had got into an argument one day and I remember telling him like you know you don't care about me you just care about getting high and he was like what are you talking about and that's when I told him like I see the cocaine in the bathroom mm -hmm. and you know he denied it he was like oh it's baby powder boom 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 whatever right 
right? So we just end the argument. Um, then I had an older friend that I used to run around with because I was like 13, but I always hung out with kids older than mm -hmm. me because I was always looking for like, you know, that bigger brother or father type right. figure. So I was always like the wild young kid that would do everything the old kids wanted me to do. So I had this um, older friend, his name was Alex, and uh, he lived downstairs from me. And he, but one day we went in the hallway and he was just like, you know, your dad smoked crack. And I'm like, I'm like, nah, my dad do coke. He don't do crack. So he's like, all right. He goes, I'm going to tell you where you go. Go in this room. Because I was in a room with him and, you know, I'm looking in this little box and you're going to see the pipes in there. Right. So he tells me that. And I didn't really like think nothing of it. But when I went home that night, I went and looked and I opened it and it sort of the stems. Like that's what they used to call pipes, mm -hmm. stems. And uh, I was just like, oh, like, you know, my dad smoked crack. Like, right. so, so that was like a different tier. So, but at that point, he was still a functioning drug addict. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he still went to work and, you know, was presentable and so on and so forth. But by the time I was 16, he was like full-fledged, like, crackhead, like, a whole nother person. So he went to jail because he actually had other drug dealers in our apartment that would sell drugs out of our apartment. Mm -hmm. Like, when people say the trap. Trap. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. nobody said trap back then. You know what I'm saying? But it was a, what would be the equivalent of a trap house. And the police raided it. And, you know, he went to jail. And the, the drug dealers who were from Brooklyn at the time, they went to jail. But, you know, my dad was just a user. So he was just away for like maybe two years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is this like 80s crack era in NYC? This is real crack era. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, this is crack era. But this is 1990, 91. I'm a, I just turned 16. So, yeah, yeah, 90, mm -hmm. 91. Yeah. yeah, it was definitely at the height of the crack era. So where did that leave you? when your father is going away and I, I would presume living in that environment that wasn't the first time you saw somebody get sent away no right, yeah, that for was, drugs right. Right. it was kind of regular um, you become numb to things right like, you know so many different things that transpired in that apartment that I've witnessed that mm -hmm. were just you know you didn't really bat an eye at right you know what I'm saying which is a whole nother thing that caused residual damage probably throughout my life um, but it left me where you know the the system wanted to take me and put mm -hmm. me in foster care you know even though I was 16 and I already had a situation multiple run-ins with law enforcement so you know they were pretty much just waiting for me to turn 16 and get arrested again so I sure. could be prosecuted as an adult um, so in that in my neighborhood I was the kid that like <laughs> your parents would be like you know don't hang out with him right mm -hmm. so I had a best friend his name was Petey and if you grew up in in the hood, I guess like every neighborhood has the the one token white kid that mm -hmm. that and, and his name if his name is Petey, everybody call him White Boy Petey, <laughs> right? So like if it's, whatever his name is, it's White Boy in front of it, and that becomes your mm -hmm. name. So this kid White Boy Petey, he's like one of my best friends, but he wasn't allowed to hang out with me because I was too wild. But his mom knew like what happened to me. Like she was, you know, she knew I didn't have nowhere to stay because I was literally like I was sleeping in the laundry room, I was sleeping in the roof, um, I was sleeping at a friend's house one night, you know. So you're whatever. just bouncing around. I'm bouncing around. Mm -hmm. and, and she knew. And she was like, you know, she's like, look, like you need to, you should just come live with us, right? But I'm embarrassed to say that I don't have anywhere to live. I'm mm -hmm. like, man, you know, what you talking about? Like, I'm, I'm not homeless. I'm good. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm all right. But go ahead, leave me alone. But then Petey is like, bro, like, you don't got nowhere to live. Just mm -hmm. come live with me. And I sat and I was like, all right, I'm getting tired of sleeping in the laundry room. Shit isn't cool. Like, all right, cool. I'm gonna come live with you. And, you know, she took me in. She ended up taking mm -hmm. me in. And I was like, uh, uh, probably if it wasn't for that woman taking me in, probably you might know me for a whole nother reason. Well, how did you skirt the system, though? Because you're not a of age. So what I imagine or envision is that when somebody's only living parent gets taken away yeah. and they're about to do time, you're 
now in the system, mm-hmm. right? And they're immediately going to try to place you. So how are you dodging living from pillar to post I without mean, child protective services? I mean, I dodged the p- police looking for me. So if I could dodge the police looking for me, <laughs> I could like, dodge child CPS protective. CPS was all good. Yeah, right? yeah. CVS, CPS. Yeah, CPS. Yeah. So, but the woman, her name is Linda, um, you know, she went and got custody of me. Mm-hmm. Like she went down to, to, to child protective services or social services and says, you know, I have this other person I'm taking in, you know, and, you know, the city, obviously they took whatever money they were giving my dad to, you know, welfare and stuff, gave it to her, allocated that money to her to take care of me. So, you know, every she was doing everything the right way. Mm-hmm. I didn't really have to dip and dodge once, you know, she went down and filed that, I guess, petition or form or mm-hmm. whatever you call it. So at that point, what had you gotten in trouble for? Oh, man. Uh, I was I was known for burglaries, robberies, um, break, stealing cars, um, graffiti. Never got arrested for drugs, even though, you know, I was in a crack era. Everybody sold crack then. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly like robberies and, and burglaries. And like I said, I was running around older kids. So if I was 13 and I was hanging with 16, 17 year olds, right? Like it's four year difference. If at our age now, four years, we kind of have the same experience. Right. right? But at 13 to 16. Vastly different. Yeah. So it kind of made me learn quicker. And I, I was kind of more advanced than everybody else my age because I hang, hung out with older kids. But I was the one that was just so willing to do anything. Like if they were like, go in this house and do this or snatch this chain or, you know, break this window and grab anything that you told me to do. Like the more wild it was, the more I wanted to do it because I wanted to impress them. You know, so I was definitely following behind the older kids. But I was a leader to my the people my age. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's anything, a lot of wild stuff in the, in the, in the eighties and nineties. Considering everything that you had been through when your dad went away and this woman took you in at that point, were you like, man, I really don't have any parents. I'm on my own. Or were you just numb to it? All? Yeah. You numb to it. Like it didn't really matter. Like, because even though my dad, I lived with my dad, mm-hmm. but he was a drug addict. You know what I'm saying? Like he couldn't tell me anything. You know, like one of the things I always say that I I regret most and haunts me to this day is like when you sell drugs to your own dad. How did that happen? Okay, break that down for me. I mean, like I said, anybody that was a teenager, late 80s, early 90s, sold crack, right? Right. Like if you grew up in a hood. And what I mean by that is not everybody was getting money, but you at least sold one vial of crack. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I took my swing at selling crack and my dad found out and, you know, he confronted me and, you know, he wanted to take my stash and I wasn't going to give it to him, but he convinced me to give him credit, you know. And so you extended credit to your own Yeah, he didn't pay me back, but... Of course not. No, but, you know, uh, it was definitely, like, at the time, it was, um, I didn't really feel any emotion at the time. I was just more mad that, like, I knew I was getting hustled by my dad. But mm-hmm. um, years later, like, it's definitely something that, like, if I could use that blue stick from, like, Men in Black and erase from mm-hmm. my memory bank, it would be something that I would choose to erase. Did your father ever beat his addiction? Um... At times. I mean, I think he's clean now. We don't really talk. He has dementia now. So mm-hmm. he's in um he's in a shelter somewhere in the Bronx. I haven't seen my dad, I'm going to say, since like 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't spoken to my dad. But um, there were times where he got clean. And then, you know, like like addiction, you, you relapse. Right. Um, I think he's been clean, but I don't know if that's by his will or because of, you know, the disease mm-hmm. he's suffering from. As someone, you know, I relate on a level who understands what it means to have a father who 
suffers with addiction, sometimes you have to come to a point to say, I love you, but I'm going to love you from afar Mm -hmm. because that addiction is always going to come before any and everything else. Did you have that moment where it was like, this is not going to work? Like you drew a line in the sand and sort of separated yourself or was it just sort of a gradual uncoupling or distancing? Um, As a teenager, I don't think you think in that detail. Mm -hmm. You know, you just kind of throw your hands up and say, F this. You know what I'm saying? But I was kind of saying F this to everything. School, my dad, um, my life um, in general. So no, but there was a point where I just disconnected from my dad as an adult. And that was when I bought my first home. Mm -hmm. And um, it's funny, like I have an 18 year old daughter, right? And my dad never met my daughter. Wow. Um, So I bought my first house in 2004, I'm going to say. And, you know, I was telling him like, dad, you know, I bought a crib and boom, boom, boom. And I was getting to the point where my daughter was five and I was, you know, thinking like, all right, my dad should meet my daughter and my wife at the time. I remember him saying like, well, where'd you get a house from? And I said, well, you know, I work like I save money. And and, and he kind of said like, no, you couldn't have did that. You know, like you couldn't have, somebody must have gave you the money to buy the mm-hmm. house. And that was insulting to me, you know, and that's when I had like a breaking point with him. And I was like, went off on a tangent, like, bro, I'm not like you. Right. Like I'm different. You know, like I work for everything I got. I'm, I don't need to scam the system to get something or beg somebody to get something. I did this on my own and we got into an argument. And that was like the last conversation we had. Do you have feelings of longing that you don't have that father son relationship? Yeah. All the time. How do you resolve that? Yeah. I don't. Or do you? I don't. You don't. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I think at a younger, at a younger age, you, you kind of take what you want to get from your dad that you might not get and look to get it from other people. Right. You know, but, um, you know, I, I definitely when I see people to have that relationship mm-hmm. with their with their dad that is normal and functioning, you know, I'm definitely envious, right? you know, of it. And, you know, I gravitated towards um, different male role models in mm-hmm. my life, some good, some bad. But uh, I don't think I'll ever come to terms with it or be accepting of it or be over it. Right. Yeah. I think I have the experience where, you know, you don't think about it every moment of every day. But it could be something as something as simple as going to get a tune up. Mm-hmm. And I see a dad in there right. with his grown daughter, like yeah. talking to the mechanic, like making sure, you, you know, make sure you take care of her. She needs two tires, what have you. And then that is when I feel that pain and yeah. that sense of, of longing. You know, you go through the day to day, but it's when it's those moments, those real mm-hmm. life reminders of what it is that you don't have that really calls up those unresolved issues as well. Yeah, for me, it's funny, like growing as a young teenager or yeah, young teenager, you know, you would watch these shows on TV mm-hmm. with the functioning family. Right. right. It might have been Family Ties, Growing Pains, The Cosby Show. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just remember looking at the TV and wanting to be those characters. Right. You know what I'm saying? And so those were particular moments that stand out where I knew like my life would never be um, the relationship with my dad just was never going to be mm-hmm. what I wanted it to be. But, you know, I think in life, what you go through can do one of two things. You can take what life did to you or someone else did to you and do it to someone else or you can go and make sure you are the complete opposite right so like when my daughter was born I made sure that you know everything that I didn't have she did Mm -hmm. you know in terms of just availability access and as a father you know having Mm -hmm. a father there so you know I'm I went extra hard in that capacity you know and granted I didn't really have a manual or a reference point on how to be a dad because I didn't really have one but Mm -hmm. you know I would reference 
TV or movies sure. and, and kind of say, okay, I got to mirror this. You know, I got to, I always tell people that have kids that are just having kids, especially when I have a daughter, like tell all my friends or people I know, like you got to be the man that you would want your daughter to date. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Because that's the example you want to set. So that's what I tried to do um, for the last 18 years. So at 16, you were not that guy though, right? Which guy? The guy that you would want your daughter to date. No, no. definitely not. So how did you get from that to running from the cops, mm -hmm. you know, getting taken in by this family? Right. Your dad going away to homeowner, husband, father. Right. Like, what was the the switch for you? I mean, it didn't happen overnight. It started with that woman taking me in. And, it, and initially it started where I've just figured I would hustle her. Mm -hmm. You know, like I would pretend to be doing good. So you went in there with the intention of hustling her. Yeah, yeah, okay. of course. I went in there with the intention of like, I'm going to get a place to crash. I'm going to still hustle. I'm going to still break the law. I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to be cool on a corner, but pretend to be doing good things. Because mm -hmm. at that point I stopped going to school. You know, school wasn't really a thing. I would go to school when I had new sneakers or something and that <laughs> just was a stunt yeah just a style on them and um other than that I really wasn't interested um but she made me go back to school um and I was still I remember initially I was like all right this is cool like I got a place to eat there's always food I wasn't used to being in a house with food um I was super skinny at a young age because I was malnutritioned to mm -hmm. be honest um and then like I felt something different like I was like all right I, f I started to feel the love of somebody like unconditional mm -hmm. you know and I was like oh this is different you know like she's not doing something for me because it benefits her. She's doing something for me because it, it's what she wants me to be better. Right. So I started feeling guilty about deceiving her. Mm -hmm. And so gradually I started to, you know, if I had both feet, both feet in the street, eventually it was nine toes, seven toes, one Eased foot. out. Yeah, I eased out, you know, and it, it took a long time. Um, I mean, I walked away from the streets. I remember vividly, I'm going to say probably around 1998 or so is like when I really, 19 somewhere around 90. So it took some years. Oh, it took a long time. Mm -hmm. But but like I remember every, everything that happened to me, I would say if I made X amount, right? If I made $5,000 doing it, doing whatever, right? Eventually I, I would lose $8,000, mm -hmm. you know? And I just kept going two steps forward, four steps back. Because that's how it works. That's how it works, right? And I remember, I, it's funny, like everybody swipes now, right? I was doing swipes in the late 90s. Really? Yeah, so, um, and I had a whole different way of doing it, but... Um, I remember doing it and I was always taking losses. Like people used to rob my crib and take my clothes and, you know, all different types of stuff would happen to me. And I remember being in Cross County Mall in Yonkers and I'm just like, I just took an L on something. And I remember being like, wow, stressed about it. And some type of intuition or something inside of me was like, as long as you continue to try to get over, you're never going to get ahead. And I convinced myself that it was like my mom watching over me, mm -hmm. like giving me these lessons, like, okay, you want to keep trying to be slick, pop, take this L, you know? And I was like, all right, I'm going to give this straight life a try. And when I did, for some reason, things started to change, you know? So what does a straight life look like, right? Because everybody knows once you've been in a life of crime and you've made choices that have given you a record or, mm -hmm. you know, you didn't finish school. One of the reasons why people go back is because they can't get ahead yeah. without the appropriate credentials or right. what have you. So how, what, what did giving this, you know, going on the straight and narrow, what did that look like for you? Oh, well, I always knew how to get a dollar 
mm-hmm. and whether legally or illegal, it's just like a <laughs> one God, way or it's another. God given talent. Mm-hmm. Like I just had this ill thing about me where like I can anything I want to do, I've been able to do just about right. So I always had found a way to get a job, and you know I tried to do things at the job that weren't right. And anywhere I did, I was looking for angles mm-hmm. on, on how I could do some things. But I was always charismatic. I had a way about me where I could get people to do what I want, and you know I always I, w- I could always navigate through any system for mm-hmm. some reason, like any scenario, I was always able to navigate my way through. And the adjustment was kind of easy because even though I wasn't in the street, I was still in the street. Like I was still outside. I was still on a corner, mm-hmm. but I just wasn't in- engaging in the extracurricular extra activities, you know? And I just said, all right, I'm gonna, I had a good job at the time, you know, at that time for how old I was, I was making good money working in a restaurant. So I was like, I'm just going to work this, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you get promoted and, you know, you get a better job and, you know, higher position and you start to meet different people. Right. So that was like one of the turning points too in my life, because up until that point, that particular job I had, all I knew was like a six block radius. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Like I've been out to other neighborhoods. Like I was traveling to Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, even but living in Yonkers. But I mean, like my existence was that environment, you know? So I didn't really understand that if you work hard, you can get ahead. I didn't really understand the idea of travel you know, going to restaurants and, you know, thinking beyond the trivial nonsense that goes on in, in the hood, mm-hmm. you know. So I go and get this job in this Italian restaurant and I'm a busboy and, you know, I'm working with all white people. Um, and, you know, I started seeing how they lived. You know what I'm saying? Like they have functioning families. They had goals. They had, you know, plans for their future. And I was like, well, man, I don't got any plan. My plan is like if I go to jail, I'm gonna come home. You know? Right. And then hopefully I could get on welfare and get an apartment. You know, like that was kind of like my mindset like that was my ultimate goal get my own apartment right and how old were you at this point well uh when I started at the restaurant I just graduated high school so I had to be 18 okay yeah I was 18 so um being around those people being around people different than myself Mm -hmm. you know kind of made me look at things differently like okay you know why am I limiting myself to what I know you know and so I worked at the restaurant for 10 years 10 years yeah I worked at the restaurant for 10 years Uh, did you work your way up yeah of course Mm -hmm. I always did that um and that's how I did transition to in a different career because one of the customers at the restaurant worked in where in the field I work in now was like you know I think you would be good at this and you should give it a try and then I did and the same thing I went into that career and you know climbed up the the ladders there so I just always had a way about me you know for some reason so what kept you busing tables right because we know being a busboy you're making no money no you was making money as a busboy listen did it compare though to like street money it kind of almost did how all right well like I said people lie when they talk about selling drugs like Everybody I knew that sold drugs didn't make money. You know what I'm saying? Like we made a couple hundred dollars. You was getting, you know, you was getting a hundred dollars on a 500 pack. So, you know, you, you wasn't really making money. Maybe you made a hundred dollars a day, right? Mm-hmm. To risk your freedom, you know, and you, right. out, you know, granted when you're selling drugs, you have a fun cause you outside, like mm-hmm. just being on a corner and talking smack and you know, the day passes by quick. It's not really hard work, but I was 18 being a bus boy making four, sometimes $500 a week. Right. And so to me at that time, 1994, that was a lot lot of money, mm-hmm. you know, for 18 year old cash, you know? So I was, that was like the incentive, like, okay, I, I could chill. It like, was keeping you there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was keeping me there. And then as you went up and you grew in positions and, you know, waiters was making more money and, you know, being a waiter, um, definitely helped me, um, be more outgoing, mm-hmm. you know, because growing up you were taught to be standoffish, you know, you were taught to stare at people and, you know, be mean. And, it's the New York way. Right. Yeah. And, and that kind of forced me to come out of my 
my shell and, and talk to people and, you know, helped me become more articulate and, you know, dialogue with customers that were wealthy, um, gave me a, a more worldly view, you know, opened my eyes to different things. So, yeah, that job definitely groomed me to become somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when did you meet your wife uh, or your former wife? I right. Say. Mm-hmm. Um, I was dating her friend. <laughs> so, wait, you were dating her friend first? Yeah. OK. I kind of had a habit of doing those things. So you were moving within the same circle. I mean, it was always easy, like, you know, <laughs> just kind of rotating. Thing. It's convenient, you know. They already knew They me. all run together, yeah, right? they okay. liked me. So, um, no, but we actually worked together before I worked in the restaurant oh. in Pathmark. So Good old Pathmark, which is shut yeah, down yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Is it shut down? Yes. What Pathmark I, is done, done for. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, we was a cashier, and she was the cashier next to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I ended up breaking up with her friend. Her friend went away to school, and, you know, we ended up becoming a thing. And, you know, that was really that. And how old were you when you got married? I got married in 2003. So we used to get a long time. Okay. You know, like 10 years before we got married. Like marriage was never really a thing for me. Mm-hmm. I got I married or unmarried. It didn't really change anything. Mm-hmm. I did it because I had a daughter. And, you know, I just wanted my daughter to f- know her parents were married and stuff. So I didn't wear a wedding ring or anything. Not because I wasn't committed to the relationship, just because I'm not into symbolism. Mm-hmm. Like to me, a piece of paper and all that stuff is cool. But at the end of the day, you got to be committed to somebody. So I did it for legal reasons and to kind of set an example for my daughter more so for the sake of the relationship because the relationship was already established. So how does one be an upstanding partner, be it just longtime significant other or husband and father when they don't have a good example of that? Um, You draw from the emotion and disappointment. Mm-hmm. that you experienced from at the hands of your parents or not parents because my mother wasn't here but my dad you know and like I said I look to a lot of examples on television mm-hmm. you know it's, that might sound funny to some people but um, I looked at those examples and I just knew that like okay I gotta be every moment that my dad missed I wanted to make sure I didn't miss and every point of weakness in my life where I didn't have anyone to turn to I wanted to make sure I was there for her to have someone to turn to. So that was just the constant reminder, you know, because I wasn't prepared to have a child at that time. And, you know, my girlfriend at the time who became my wife was committed to having a child. And, you know, I was faced with the the situation where, okay, I'm not prepared. She's going to have it. Do I disappear like most people? Right. Might, or do I fight? the, um, you know, break the cycle, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to break the cycle. And, and that was kind of like one of the best things that happened to me. Cause that, even though I say like I was out of the streets, I still put myself in some situations that I may not have put myself in, mm-hmm. but knowing I had a daughter that was going to be counting on me, gave me an, an extra set of discipline mm-hmm. that I didn't have because it's one thing to get myself in trouble or get killed or what oh, get harmed, you know, but I can handle that for myself. But right. knowing that the, the the collateral damage would be my daughter's burden allowed me to have a, a level of strength that I didn't have prior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. So shifting gears a little bit, you have not mentioned that you are the host of the Cryptology Podcast. Yes. Tell us what the Cryptology Podcast is about. Uh, the Cryptology Podcast is a podcast about cryptocurrency and blockchain mm-hmm. technology, mm-hmm. which is most people know the term Bitcoin. Right. You know, it's a part of the Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, it's a podcast about in investing um, about technology it it really started because I got into I've always been into technology Um, it's like one of the few dudes in the 
with a computer. So how did that happen? Because in my research, I did hear about this computer in the hood. Yeah. So what, first of all, what kind of computer was it? Was a it? Commodore 64. The good old Commodore. Yeah. We had one of those yeah, back yeah, in the day. Yeah, everybody did. So Not everybody, but the lucky people. Did. You had the Commodore 64. Yeah. What could it even do besides word process? I feel like I remember like a couple of games. I on played it. But. I had so many games. <laughs> and if you were lucky enough to have a modem, you could go on what would be considered the internet before mm-hmm. the internet where you didn't, you know, the internet now is a bunch of servers and people pull, pull their information off the servers. But back then you had to actually call somebody's house. Which is just crazy. Right. So I would call right. your computer mm-hmm. and my computer and your computer would talk and we would exchange games through the phone. Um, so my dad was really smart, right? My dad was before drugs. And this is one of the things that really drove me crazy after his addiction, because my dad, if he took an IQ test, he was a genius. Like Mensa level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. was like, mm-hmm. a, like legit genius. And he was in the computers. So he got bought us a computer. And, you know, that really was like a big bond for us. Like mm-hmm. we spent so much time using a computer and learning everything about the computer. And that kind of kept me inside for a couple summers. Um, and then after addiction, he couldn't even like process of writing down a phone number. So mm-hmm. that used to drive me crazy, like to see the change in, in mental um, capacity. But, um, you know, the computer just was um, tech was always something I was into. So I get into crypto, I get into Bitcoin. And a lot of people um, would see me talking about it on mm-hmm. Twitter and would ask me advice. And, you know, I don't have a big following on Twitter, a couple thousand followers, but I got good quality of followers because of things that I've done prior. Um, and some people that were pretty well known would always ask me advice about um, crypto and, like, mm-hmm. you know, this, that and the other. And I was actually up in Montreal with somebody um, and, you know, he was like, you know, I think you should do a podcast on it. You know, like that'll be kind of cool. And um, I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. So I come back down to New York and then I'm thinking about it, thinking about it for like six months. And I was like, all right, you know, I, I approach the people, uh, a King at Loudspeakers Network who I have a relationship with. And I was like, you know, I got an idea for this podcast. And, you know, the whole pitch was it was going to be to talk about tech, crypto, investing, blockchain. Mm-hmm to poor people who are people of color, people that necessarily don't get spoken to about these things because we get so caught up in, you know, the nonsense, you know what I'm saying? We get distracted, whether it's World Star, Vlad TV, um, you know, stuff that really does- the Shade Room. Yeah. Shade Room, mm-hmm. right. You know, like, not that I don't like those things. Right. But I feel like, you know, diet of the mind is important, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we definitely consume a lot of junk food. So I was like, you know, there's so many people out there that can that should be getting hip to crypto because it's at the, the infant stage. You know, there's an sure. opportunity to to really get on something that can change your life if you become an expert in it because there's no experts right now. It's so new. Mm-hmm. So it was really like, OK, let's um, let's give that a shot. And it's funny, you know, I was originally starting it with someone else who's no longer on the show, still a good friend of mine. But and I brought in a guest on the first show, which was Carl. And, you know, me and him, we knew each other from Twitter. We never mm-hmm. met in person. And he came on the show and we had such good chemistry or energy. I was just like, y'all just kind of want you to be on the show every episode. And, you know, we kind of just did it like that. So um, it was it, it was just my way of giving back, mm-hmm. you know, like, OK, listen to this. Enjoy it. I'm a crack jokes. I'm gonna make you laugh. I'm gonna spend half the show talking nonsense. Just off on a yeah, tangent. Yeah. <laughs> but then the other half, you're going to hopefully absorb something and go and um, research some of the stuff we're talking about. And we've had so many people that send us messages like, hey, man, you know, I appreciate you so much. Like I would have never thought about investing or any of that stuff prior to your podcast. We have people send us money. Really? Yeah. So it was just like, that's what I do it for. Like, Mm -hmm. I I don't I told people like I don't if I never made one dollar off the podcast, I don't care. Like, that's not what I did it for. I did it because it's about change, you know, and impacting people. Because I always say, like, if when you die, if your tombstone says I made a lot of money, like you didn't really do anything. Right. You know what I'm saying? 
but if you could just have impact on some people's lives in a positive way, you could lead this earth in good spirits. So how did you discover crypto? It's still fairly new. So I'll say how and when did you discover crypto? Uh, I first discovered it in 2012 and I didn't, I failed to actually buy some, which I regret because mm-hmm. I was at work and I was telling somebody at work like, hey, I'm about to buy some Bitcoin. I'm going to put a couple stacks in it and just see what happens. And I got distracted and I never went back to it. And, you know, that was 2012 or so. And I remember last year, 2017, looking like, man, if I would have put a couple stacks in it, I could have had a couple hundred thousand dollars right now. Exactly. Right. So I was kind of mad at myself for that. And I saw these other coins that were starting to to make noise. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to miss the bus again. And I put some money in it. And, you know, I turned a small investment to a, a big investment. And that, you know, once you start making money in something, then you just become like obsessed with it, I right. guess, and start researching and researching and learning more and learning more. And I just kind of became this voice or source of information for for crypto for people in the hood. So mm-hmm. it um, it just made sense to, you know, put it into a platform with a, with a bigger reach. Well, let me ask you this, because there's a general like mistrust yeah. anyway within certain communities around things that they may not necessarily understand right. or just seem vague or mysterious. Yeah. I think the issue that people have with cryptocurrency is that it's not everywhere. It's not pervasive yet. It still seems like this mysterious thing mm-hmm. that's out there in the ether that I can't touch and I don't understand it. Yeah. How do you overcome that suspicion in the hood, essentially, and, and get people to see this as a legitimate investment opportunity. Well, let me ask you a question. I assume you have a, a job. Yes. OK. Um, what's the last time your job ever gave you any money? Never. Right. It just mm-hmm. appears in your account. Right. Right. But you never really touch it. Right. So it's the same thing. And I just tell people, like, imagine being in, I don't know, what year was that? The late 1800s when people, trans- I don't know what, maybe late 1800s, when people transitioned from actual gold to a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Like, what's more spookier than that? You know? Right. So this is just the next phase because we went from the barter system. We might have traded horses and hays, right? Mm-hmm. Horses and hay to gold. Well, actually, probably has like clams, depend shells, right? And gold. Then you went to the dollar. Then you went to plastic, which was, you know, credit cards right. and debit cards. This is just an extension of that. You know, uh, how it ends up being used is up in the air, but you know, it's no different than buying a stock. When you buy a stock in a company, you don't touch it, right? right. Like they don't send you a piece of the company. You don't get a brick <laughs> in the mail. Like, hey, here's you don't your get three pebbles, right? right? So it's no different. You just have to, you know, you, I tell people just to read and research, you know, use logic, you know? And I always tell people too, like if if you're just making money to to buy things that don't make you more money, you're really wasting your money, mm-hmm. you know, because the jobs that we have, like I go to job, I work 40, 50 hours a week, but I use that money to fuel my other dreams mm-hmm. and other aspirations, you know, um, and some of it is crypto, right. some of it is real estate, some of it is podcasting, some of it is, you know, I have other things in the works, so other businesses, you know, it's all those things are fuel by my job, Mm -hmm. but my job is not my end-all be-all. It should never be anyone's end-all be-all. And I think the disconnect sometimes is people get a pretty well-paying job and it takes a while to get there, right? Mm -hmm. You work over years, you you build up equity somewhere in a company or you build up experience until you get that well-paying job. And because people know struggle, when they finally get the money, Mm -hmm. it's like, I don't want to invest it. I want to enjoy mm-hmm. the fruits of my labor. I want to be flashy, yeah, right? We like things. We mm-hmm. like nice things. We so do. I think part of it is the delayed gratification too. Like I'm investing in something that I may not fully understand or I, I'm going to have to sit on for however long. I don't want to, I don't know what I'm going to get on a return on it. Mm-hmm. And I'm also sacrificing my ability to do floss today. 
Right. So I think it's that too. And I'm not sure how we change that mindset. Yeah. Um, especially with people who don't have a lot as it is. And then they get a little and we're saying, right. okay, now invest in your passion and grow this into something long-term, something that may be slow, gro- slow growing. I think, you know, the, the, the way you do that is proof of mm-hmm. concept, you know? So when people saw people making money in crypto, then all of a sudden it became exciting, mm-hmm. you know? So I think you have to know someone that you believe in and they show you that they've got what they actually achieved and they paint a picture for you on on where this is going long term. But I say all the time on, you know, we and I'm just as guilty as anyone of wasting money on things that I don't need to to overcompensate for things I didn't have at as a young age. You know, especially when you're poor most of your life, when you finally get some money, you want to feel wealthy Mm -hmm. or rich. But we keep ourselves poor by trying to feel rich. Right. You know, and it's no reason that we should be buying, you know, an $800 belt realistically. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's just not it just doesn't make sense. Like, and I've done it, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And I continue to buy things that don't make sense. You know, now I might buy different things. Maybe art is something that might be worth something in the future or not, but I'm really buying it because I connect with it. People right. connect with a belt, whatever, but just don't let that be all you spend money on. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Just take a fraction of what you do and put it in, whether it's, you know, make sure you got your 401k, uh, if you want to do stocks, if you want to do crypto, but do something, you know, like mm-hmm. just, just don't spend a hundred percent of what you earn. Right. Yeah. I got it all coming in. It's all going it's out. It's all going out. We day. love doing that. And we're coming up on tax time. So I feel like this is a good message to put out there right now when you get that tax refund. Yeah. I mean, I tell people like we do Bitcoin challenge mm-hmm. and it's basically uh, accumulating Bitcoin and in, in over a um, five year period. It's a five year challenge. So we're in week 10 or 11. And okay. I tell people, you know, every Monday, take what you can afford. Right. But make it come up with a consistent number. Look at your budget. Right. So for me, I put in X amount every week. I've mm-hmm. done it for the last 10 weeks. Come up with what works for you. Just because I put this amount in doesn't mean that you got it. You could put in $10. Right. If you do it every week for the next five years, you're going to accumulate a position. And mm-hmm. I promise you, you will get in five years. If, if you, I would be very, very shocked if you don't get a hundred percent return on your investment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're talking about turning 5,000 into 10,000, right. you know, just by doing nothing, you know, and that's two lattes. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's exactly. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? $10 a week. And pretty much anyone listening to this podcast can afford $10 a week. Right. You know what I'm saying? So there's no reason not to. So outside of the, cryptology podcast when someone says I don't know the first thing about crypto but I want to learn mm-hmm. where do you guide them or direct them I tell them you know Google is your best friend mm-hmm. um, Google Bitcoin Google blockchain Google Ethereum Google Litecoin Google cryptocurrency and you know read those five things learn those five things mm-hmm. right then come back and tell me what those five things are. You know, let me make sure that you actually understand how they work and, and what they do. And once you understand them, it's not complicated. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like we, we get intimidated by things because we don't see people like us in that field. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like if you told me, you know, when we were growing up, if someone gave you a basketball, you might've never played, but you wasn't scared to try mm-hmm. because you saw everyone like you doing basketball, you know, or rapping, you know, mm-hmm. we see everybody we know rapping. So we feel like, oh, I could do it. You know what I'm saying? You have a different level of confidence but we don't see people in the tech space. So we might look and say like, oh, I don't know. That's kind of spooky. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's not hard. You know what I'm saying? We, especially when you come from the, I hate to use the word the hood, like when you just come from unfavorable conditions. Right. I feel like the level of intelligence 
in those conditions is is so underrated. And ingenuity, you know, ingenuity, and ability to, no, to be enterprising, yeah, all of it. Yes, no, nobody is more uh, has more ingenuity than the people that don't have anything. Mm-hmm. You know, so we kind of underrate ourselves. You know, just because we might not have the the education that can be validated, right? You know, but we definitely had intelligence. Everybody listening to this has the intelligence and you know the ability to just learn and consume information and apply it. So, what else do you think can be done? You know, we have podcasting, we have Google, but to break down those barriers to access to information to people who are in underserved areas, especially young people, because trust and believe there are certain populations where they're learning this before they're even out of high school. Listen, man, you go right now in in Africa, though, in India, some of the poorest neighborhoods, there's kids that are building computers Mm -hmm. out of spare parts found in the garbage. You know what I'm saying? So uh, the ability to do things is proven. But, you know, we need more more access and more information. Like I said, I feel like we, everybody that's creating these curriculum programs for inner city, I feel like we focus on the same stuff. It's mm-hmm. either a sports program, a music program or a fashion program, right? Like those are the three pillars and those are cool, you know, but we definitely got to look at the tech space. You know, like I got friends that have younger kids and they're like, you know, I'm sending my son to football camp, basketball camp. And I'm like, yo, that's cool. But send your, your, your child to coding school. Right, STEM. Yeah, mm-hmm. like these are the things that is going to really put them in a position to win in life. So, you know, we talked to a couple people about putting together a, a curriculum on um, blockchain and, and, and technology in general in some schools. And, you know, we might be able to see it through. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in the infant stage of, of having those conversations. Um, you know, we toyed around with the, 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 with this thing called uh, the, the, the name um, Learn to Earn University, mm-hmm. you know, so um, which talks about investing and, you know, managing money because in high school, none of that is taught. You know, right. you have we are taught the most basic stuff that isn't applied in real life situations. So just imagine if we were taught how to manage money and the the basics of investing and saving and, you know, taking your money and using it to make money instead of just buying merchandise and learning that early. Yeah. Because yeah, eventually, yeah. like a lot of us catch up, you yeah, know, like, like our 30s, a lot, our late 20s. Yeah. Don't, don't even know what their credit score is today. Twenty five. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, so it's ridiculous The the school system is failing people. But you know, we also have to hold ourselves accountable, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's parents that are not giving their, their children those that knowledge or the younger people who are in their early 20s not seeking it out because they're seeking out information that is really useless. Right. Yeah. So tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Um, most of my early teenage years, um, you know, one thing that always, one moment that I always reflect upon and I talk about how when you're going through adversity at a young age, you usually come to a parent. Mm -hmm. and talk to a parent and say, you know, this is what I'm going through. And, you know, they direct you and and guide you. And I I didn't have that. So I kind of developed a relationship with God. Um, I I was like, all right, I need somebody to talk to. Mm -hmm. And I can't talk to my dad. And I can't talk to dudes in the hood because they don't want me to do anything good anyway. Right. And I literally like was like, all right, I'm going to just try and pray. You know, like, I don't know why I feel this conviction to pray, but I'm just going to pray. And I remember like getting on my knees and I prayed and I'm not a religious person. Like, you know, I'm a spiritual person, mm-hmm. you know, like I dabbled in all religions. I, I was raised, I guess, Catholic. I went and did uh, communion. And then in the nineties, I dabbled with like Islam and, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of, if I had to pick something, I probably am more favorable to, to Islam or being a Muslim, but um, I don't follow a particular religion because I feel they're all man-made, but I felt a connection 
to God and I prayed and now that was 19, probably 89 Mm -hmm. and it's 2018. And like, I still pray every night. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So that was uh, probably me at my weakest moment, um, feeling really hopeless and not sure where life was going to take me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I I found some strength in having someone to talk to, even if it was no one talking back. I was going to ask, did you feel like you had a spiritually transformative experience or was it just the very act of being able to get out your feelings and speak to someone or some being higher than yourself? Well, you know, I think uh, people always talk about God and, you Mm -hmm. know, you you hear these things as a young kid, you know, God's going to make it right. And, you know, you got to have faith. And, you know, for me, it was just like, all right, I felt hopeless, Mm -hmm. but this gave me a little bit of hope. If there is a God, right, because I wasn't certain. I was like, if there is one, there's a chance that he's going to listen and and make sure my life doesn't end up um, in a way that I didn't want it to. Absolutely. Yeah. So in a perfect world, where do you see yourself in the next two to three years? Next two to three years? um, I mean, I have some things that I'm working on. Um, I can't say exactly, but um, I'm hoping that these deals fall in place. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully um, the podcast will be bigger. It'll be help reaching more people. Um, I'll be having a dual residency on the East and the West Coast. Um, I'm with that plan. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. So that's 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 my short term goal. Um, you know, in a better space in my personal life or relationship wise, because um, I have some moving parts that I'm working on sorting out still. Going through separation is always um, mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in two to three years, I can't say that I'm going to see maybe a significant difference. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 years from now, I could see things being a little, a lot different where I, right now I have multiple revenue streams, but I still have to work. Right. You know, I want enough revenue streams where my, I work at my own pace for mm-hmm. myself, not for someone else. So you said that you're going through a separation. Yeah. How does that feel? Okay. So you did all this work of like not having a stable family life growing up. And yeah. then you said, I'm going to be something different, you know, for my child. I'm going to, yeah. you know, get whatever examples I could get, be it from television or otherwise to be a good partner and a good father and now making a decision that this is not working and we need to go our separate ways. How does that make you feel? Uh, It makes you sad at times, Mm -hmm. but you know, you got to understand that you got to live your life for yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, if that's what makes me happy, you know, that's what I need to do to, for my own sanity, you know, not to Mm -hmm. say things were bad necessarily before, but you know, uh, I just needed something different mm-hmm. yeah. but do you feel like I would do this again yeah like I'd work on a family unit again yeah I, mm-hmm. yeah of course I mean I think family is the most important thing in life mm-hmm. you know like so you know but family doesn't necessarily have to be blood right you know it, it doesn't necessarily have to be wife husband child you know family can be friends mm-hmm. you know but everybody has to have a core you know that they can come to or lean on so you know uh, definitely working on family is uh, I think everyone should do that Absolutely. So where do you draw strength from? What does your inner circle look like considering your family background and now yeah. the uncoupl- uncoupling that's happening as well? Uh, I mean, I got childhood friends, you mm-hmm. know, that even though now I'm doing so much different things, I don't get to see them the, sure. the way I used to. But we have a, a text thread that kind of keeps us in mm-hmm. touch. You know, they kind of shame me for not being around a little bit. Um, but, 
I draw inspiration from my daughter still. Um, I have new friends, you know, mm -hmm. like everyone says, like, no new friends. That's to me is stupid. You know, like I, I believe you can make new friends, right. you know, and I have, you know, like my co-host Carl, that's a new friend, mm -hmm. you know, I make new friends, you know, and, and you lean on those people or they lean on you, right. you know, but it's just source of inspiration is, is probably my past. I look where I started and where I'm, where I'm at, but I know that I still got a ways to go. Mm -hmm. So, it's funny you should mention the new friends because we've been talking about this the, the crew and I like you know you have your hardcore folks yeah. that you've known for years they know you they know they knew you before you were this right yep. for Elgin Swift today host of Cryptology Podcast right um, but as your life expands and your interests expands and yeah. your net worth expands yeah. the network should as well yeah absolutely and you want the ability to say you know I want to be that person that's like I got a guy you know and yeah. not just for right. <laughs> things that might be unsavory because we all know those folks right, right. but people who are helping you rise to the next level, be it financially, intellectually, yeah. spiritually, whatever. And, and that's where I think we should be open to new friends. You're always going to have your core. Right. But expanding that circle in a way where it brings you to a higher level of consciousness and helps you to maximize whatever your potential is. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you limit yourself to the same group of friends for your whole life, mm -hmm. you're really limiting your experiences, you know. So it's like when I talked about going and working in that restaurant. Right. Like I would have never hung out with those people if I stayed in the hood. Mm -hmm. I would have never experienced the things I experienced. So I think it's important that you have your loyal friends from day one, mm -hmm. but don't limit yourself to them and understand it's okay to grow apart. You right. know what I'm saying? Like if we hang every day and we get into whatever, right? Mm -hmm. That's our interest at that time. Um, and then, you know, maybe I get into art, right? Which I got into art in 2013, 14, somewhere around there, right? So art became like a real ho hobby for me and I be made friends that are into art. And sure. the friends I grew up with, you know, they might be into shooting somebody. They're not into <laughs> art, you know, but it don't mean I don't love them. I just don't want to shoot anybody. They're not at the gallery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it's okay. You know, if I want to get my art fixed, mm -hmm. I'm with those people. If I want to get my fix on blockchain, I'm with those people. If I want to go back to the corner and, and see the people I grew up with, I do that, you know, and it's okay. Every things serves a different purpose. You know, friends can be like an outfit. Right. You, know, you might wear a suit when you got to, when it's called for it. You might be in some sweatpants when it calls for it, you know? But have you ever had a moment as new opportunities present themselves and you start getting further into tech? Because we all know that tech, crypto, investing, that community looks a certain way. It's, yeah. Let's keep it real. It's very vanilla. It, so yeah. did you ever have a moment where you're like, I need to set boundaries with the folks I know from back in the day because I'm moving in a new circle now? Or do you move seamlessly between both? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would. There's friends that I grew up with that I would bring into different spaces, mm -hmm. and some show interest, and some don't, mm -hmm. and that's okay, you know. But it's funny you mentioned that. Like when we were moving around in the crypto space, you know, me and um, two other friends, and one of the people who um, became he, you know, kind of bogarted his way into being a co-host on a show. My friend Dutch, um, he's now, I guess, a co-host. He made himself one, mm -hmm. um, and he does a great job. The people really like him, so I had no choice but to keep his mic on. I used to keep it off all the time. Um, um, we, um, where was, so we were going through this thing. We were trying to start up a, uh, a business, a startup in the crypto space. And we were encountering different groups of people, you know, most vanilla flavored. Mm -hmm. Um, and we found they fit into one or two boxes. There were ones that kind of looked at us and were like, nah, <laughs> Nah, can't, we yeah, y'all can't do this. <laughs> and then there were the other ones that were like, well, we don't know if you could do this, but we just want to hang out with some cool people. Right. So like, come on, let's hang out. You know, I don't know if we're going to do business, but let's go do cool stuff. And, you know, I, that, I was watching all this unfold. And, you know, when I say I'm working on a deal, you know, I've actually 
transitioned from, we, we had this business model, which didn't work out, you know, and I pivoted that into a, a sitcom. Really? Yeah. So I have a deal on the table and, um, I'm just trying to, I got lawyers fighting over the deal, making sure that the deal's favorable. So are you writing this sitcom or just conceptualizing I it? I conceptualized it. I helped write it with a writer, a friend of mine named Jace, who's uh, going to be part of our production company. It's called the uh, Live Us On Set. Um, me, Dutch and Jace, and, you know, we're going to do some things together, but, um, I put a deck together with the help of my um, girlfriend. She is a great deck builder, mm-hmm. and I pitched it, and they loved it. So, so it might be like, what's it called again? The production company, Lavis on set. The Lavis on yeah. set coming to either Netflix yeah. or a, hopefully, a yeah, yeah. That, that's near the name you. of the production company. Mm-hmm. It won't be the name of the show, but you'll see the logo. But we'll see it in the credits once yeah, it comes. It the, the show credits, will have a different man. name, it, it, but we'll know you're fu- behind it. It's funny the, the story behind the name. We was at Art Basel, and uh, we were at a party with dudes that were like from the '90s. <laughs> and, um, you know, like if you've been around dudes from the 90s, even though I'm from the 90s, like a lot of dudes didn't evolve from the 90s. They're just stuck. They're stuck in the They're 90s. stuck. And I was telling my friend Dutch, I'm like, man, look at these dudes. Like, bro, they always got to be the livest on set. <laughs> like, no, at all times. Like, you know, they got to be with whatever. You 45 and you want to bust your gun, you know? <laughs> and so when we were coming back and we were talking about like, yo, we need a name for the um, production company. I was like, yo, we just got to call it on set because it, to me it's such a funny term because it meant something to us. Now you sound like the old heads in the club, though. What you mean? No, but <laughs> but think about live. It's on set. You you film. You making movies. You're on yes, the set. Yes. So it has dual meaning. Mm-hmm. Like when people hear live. It's on set. It's going to make sense in the, in that space. But when we know what it really came from, you know, it has some um, sentimental value from that trip. Um. So it's it's kind of we laugh at the name every time we say it. I'm very intrigued. Did you like? Did you know a while ago? Like I'm going to work in TV, or I'm going to at least try to, or did this yeah, literally just, just come up? Is, I, well, I was. We, we recorded last night the latest episode, and I was saying the most important thing in life is the, the ability to pivot and counter move. And so when we failed at the first situation, I just look for, I'm always looking for the pivot. Right. You know, and how can I counter move and, and turn something else out of something that didn't work? And like when I told them, like, yo, I'm going to write a sick, a dramedy. It wasn't even a sitcom, it's a dramedy. Like if you took Atlanta, Entourage, and Silicon Valley and put them all together. That would kind of be what it is. Um, and it, it focuses on minorities in tech. Um, and I started right. I started working on an outline of it. And this dude, Jace, that I know who I met when I was managing artists in a music space, um, was a writer and director. And I was like, say, yo, I got this idea, et cetera, et cetera. And he was like, yo, I love it. I said, OK, let's work on it. I want you to write the script. Here's the characters. Start writing. Mm-hmm. You know, he wrote the first episode and he would give it to me and I would share it with Dutch. And we would look and be like, no, change this, change this. You know, we would tweak everything. So we had like a first episode. So written, but and I went and pitched it to somebody, to a company, and um, I pitched it with no deck, no script. Like, How did you even get connected to this company to um, pitch them? Dutch knew some people there. Okay. He kind of knows people in different places, so I pitched it without a deck. And the person that runs the company was like, "Yo, I need this. Like, I want it. I love it." But I knew I didn't really have the full package, mm-hmm. so I was like, "Okay," I said, "You know, I'm gonna, put, I'm gonna get you the deck. I'm gonna send you the deck so you can send it to your team and make sure everybody likes it." So it was like crunch. Like I had to really put the deck together, and I drew out the first ten episodes in like 48 hours. Um, and, you know, sent it off and here we are. You know, like I said, I have a deal right now. I could sign a deal if I want, but I just don't want to sign the deal because it's a deal. It needs to be a deal that I'm correct. comfortable with. So hopefully the lawyers can agree and we'll see what happens. And speaking as a lawyer, if yeah. it's the first deal they put out, it's not the best deal no, it could be. No, that's a fact. <laughs> I, I deal with deals all day. So I already know, you, you know, we, your first deal is never your best deal. Never, ever, ever. Yeah. Well, I'm excited. I'm yeah, excited to see what I'm this goes. I'm excited to see what happens. There's yeah. a small subset of people that I've met in my life where I say, 
They're going to always be okay. And you're definitely one of those Appreciate people. That. Elgin yeah. is one of those people who is always going to I be think okay. So. Yeah, like I said, I told you in the beginning of the episode, like I have this weird way of willing things to happen. Mm-hmm. So like I said, I'm someone that doesn't know anything about writing TV shows or scripts or that space. But I got to offer. You know what I'm saying? I got friends that are in that space for 10 years. I got a really close friend who's been in that space for 10 years. And he's like, man, he goes, I'm not going to lie. He goes, I'm jealous but right. I'm happy because I've been trying this for 10 years and you don't know what you're doing I know people who've been trying yeah. to sell one project for right. 15 years 18 years right again I, I could sign a deal and the deal could never get made but mm-hmm. again I feel accomplished just in making it this far well I feel like I'm on a like you heard it here first yeah you that. might you know <laughs> when the show pops we'll have to come back on you exactly know, we'll have a real PR team I'll be like you know coming with a whole entourage and then you're gonna have like all these requirements yeah, and a yeah, writer it's, it's gonna be, be like a whole so thing skittles and sweet tarts yes, and, you know, questions different types. that I can't ask yeah yeah exactly right don't look directly in my eyes <laughs> stuff like that I got it well, I'm glad we got in early though yeah yeah that's a fact so where can people find you online um elgin.com uh, e-l-g-i-n-d-o-t-c-o-m on um, twitter Instagram. I kind of fell off on Twitter because I've been so busy. I got to get back on it. Um, I'm still there, but mm-hmm. you know, um, I'm mostly now respond to people I, instead of getting, you know, four or 500 tweets off a day. I don't have that type of time. You were doing that before? I probably was. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. Well, you know, it happens. <laughs> Boredom is the devil's playground. Um, but Instagram, Twitter, um, Facebook, you can find me under my government, Elgin Swift, LinkedIn, Elgin Swift. Okay. And does the Cryptology podcast have its own social media presence yeah, as well? Yeah, Cryptology Pod, so it's C R Y P T O L O G Y P O D um, on Instagram and Twitter. You can look it up on SoundCloud and our podcast app. Um, hopefully, we'll end up on some other stuff too. But like I said, we're 40 episodes in. We're a relatively new podcast, but the the response and feedback has been really good. Like I said, to, for people to message us and tell us that you know we've had an impact on them, that's the purpose we do it. Absolutely. Yeah. And let me just say, having listened, the Cryptology Podcast is educational and irreverent all at the same time. Thank you. It's Thank a good you. time. Thank <laughs> you for listening. Appreciate it. We don't we don't take any listener lightly. You know what I'm saying? It's a they lot of things. They all count. Trust listen, me, I lot, know. A lot of things you can listen to in this world. And the fact that people take an hour out their day or an hour and a half to listen to my nonsense is, is uh, very, very encouraging and flattering. You're quite the character in the best way possible. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, listen, thank you for coming on the show. Yes. I hope you enjoyed it. I, I loved it. It was great. Awesome. To our listeners, check out Cryptology Podcast. Get educated on the investment opportunities out there. Check out Elgin and everything he's talking about online and follow him because it sounds like he's just getting started. Yeah, there's, there's more to come. And remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa, and music was provided by Tovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 